Welcome to Hearthside Salons. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you conversations with creators and innovators to feed your creative fire. It's been said that if Michelangelo were alive today, he wouldn't be painting the Sistine Chapel, he'd be making movies. After all, movies and TV are, as my guest puts it, today's campfire, and the story is the way we make sense of the otherwise random events in our lives. Telling stories is vital to who we are as humans. Today, writer and professor Robin Russin shares with us about how to make yourself stand out as a writer, stories from the trenches like how Eastwood's divorce killed one of his films, and how the sexiest word in Hollywood might just be no. So Robin Rusin, welcome to Hearthside Salons. Hello. Thanks. I wanted to talk to you because you were one of my professors at UCLA. And uh, I got so much out of your class. Well, I want to start by because you're, you've had a really interesting career. You have a very, you know, all kinds of kind of like, wait, that and then that, you know, so like there's some really interesting turns and stuff. And I want to just start by talking a little bit about the start of it all, your your childhood. I know you grew up in Wyoming and Italy. Can you yeah. share how how does how does that come about? Well, yeah, I was born in in Laramie, Wyoming, um, and uh, grew up there on and off. Uh, part of the part of my childhood was spent in Italy, as you say. My father uh, was a sculptor and uh, taught at the University of Wyoming. Taught sculpture there, so that's why we were in Wyoming. Um, and uh, he would go to Italy almost every year, sometimes for a year or two at a time, and uh, took his family with him because he was working in the marble yards and foundries there in the uh, Carrara Pietrasanta region and in Florence. So part of my childhood uh, was spent uh, in Italian schools, uh, your basic Italian elementary school, and Amazing. part of it was uh, spent in Wyoming. But uh, after high school, I went to Harvard and studied art history and classics because I thought I was also going to go into sculpture. I thought I was going to be a visual artist. And so I wanted to get a background in art history and the classics. Um, and after Harvard, I got a scholarship to go to Oxford. And while I was there... Just a little scholarship, a Rhodes scholarship. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I had a Rhodes scholarship. And one of the things about the roads is uh, you just have two years to study whatever you want to study mm -hmm. and they pay you to be there, you know, so one, please, uh, where do I sign up? That's amazing. Yeah, no, it was really, it was, it was an amazing opportunity. And I started off in classical archeology span actually there and then realized it really wasn't what I wanted to do. So I switched to English literature and language because I figured I'm in England, I'm at Oxford. Sure. There's all these amazing world experts on Shakespeare and whatever else. And I thought, well, i am just spend my two years reading. And when I was doing that, I started writing as well. And then after I uh, graduated uh, Oxford, I went to Rhode Island School of Design to get an MFA in sculpture. And at the time I was the only figurative artist in the department and didn't really feel like I was had a place there. Mm. But I, as I said, I'd been writing and I took a film class. And then I got into an argument with one of my fellow sculpture MFA <laughs> students as I did with a, a lot, I got to do a lot of arguments. Um, and I was talking about uh, the value of figurative work in Michelangelo, so forth. And um, she said, oh, Michelangelo, if, he were, if Michelangelo were alive today, he wouldn't be painting a ceiling, he'd be Francis Ford Coppola. Oh. And much as I had very little respect for this person, um, 
<laughs> it just hit home really hard. I thought, wow. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go out to LA for a couple of weeks and just see what's what. And uh, so I came out and got, you know, introduced to a friend of a friend of a friend kind of thing. And uh, I met a director who uh, lived in Holmby Hills, which is the most elegant and expensive part of Beverly Hills. And he said, you know what? I'm going on location for three months. Would you like to house sit for me? Oh. And so here I am in this mansion in Holmby Hills, like oh you know, a couple a couple doors down from the Playboy Mansion. And I thought, well, I could get used to this. Mm -hmm. um, you know. And in the meantime, I'd been writing screenplays. And my first screenplay was a complete disaster because I didn't know what I was doing. It's supposed but to be. Your first one's supposed to be a complete disaster. It was this hugely ambitious attempt to tell the story of the Odyssey through the Vietnam War. So it was- You know, that's actually not a bad idea. It's, it's actually, it was a pretty good idea. I just didn't know how to write it. Um, but I did tons and tons of research. It took me a year to write the thing. And I showed it to him, this director, and he looked at it and he said, yeah, not a screenplay. <laughs> so, so he gave me Sid Field, which was the only book out at the time, and uh, said, read this and come back to me. So I started working on it. And then I got some um, internships. And then I, I, in the meantime, I, after the three months were up, I went back to Rhode Island, where Rhode Island School of Design, where my uh, fiance was. And I said, uh, well, she wasn't my fiance yet, but I said, I want to go to uh, Los Angeles. So I guess we better get married if you're going to come with me. So it was a very romantic proposal. Wow. That's just like, I can hear the heartstrings fluttering on the oh, lines yeah. Yeah, here. It was, it was, it was really, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, you know, there was birds chirping and everything. And so when I came back out, I got an internship uh, at uh, a couple different places where mostly New World Pictures. Um, I worked for uh, Marjorie Scurris. I worked for, and what I was doing basically was reading scripts, you know, yeah. so it's, a reading thing. it's a great way to learn how to write. Yeah. So, you know, 40 bucks a script, whatever. So I read probably about 2000 scripts over the course of a year and a half, maybe two years, because I just really dug in. And yeah. then um, I realized I needed to figure out what the hell I was doing. I wrote another screenplay that was better. And that got me into UCLA, into the MFA program at UCLA. And then once I was at, once I was there and I was really learning and sort of in the mix, uh, that's where I began selling my first work and just kind of continued from there. But I still keep a sculpture studio in back. I still go out and do yeah. it. Not as often as I would like, but anyway. No, so I think that was what most surprised me. You know, I remember we, we came over at some point, you were having something, some birthday party or something. And we came over and I was like, oh, there's sculpture all over. And I didn't know that side of you. So that was a surprise to me and to find out and then, no, no, actually that was your roots. That was this was the offshoot, not that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of, I, 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 my wife and I say we can never move because we've got so much sculpture in this house. That, it's too know, heavy. We're just going to, yeah, we're just going to sink into the earth at some point. <laughs> sculpture. Well, so a lot of times when I'm speaking to artists, one of the commonalities is, you know, your parents didn't necessarily want the, ro the road of artist for you. And it was, you know, maybe even actively dissuaded, but it sounds like your family already had the artistic persuasions going on and was like, were they supportive when you said this is what you wanted? Yeah, yeah, my parents were, were great. I mean, my dad had one of, the, one of the best stories my father ever told me, and I, I was a late child. I have two much older brothers, um, and I was, my, my parents were in their mid-40s when I was born. So he grew up during the Great Depression, 
and he got his first his first big sculptural commission was a WPA arts project. Oh wow! A big, a big post office uh, assembly of, of, of bas relief sculptures that uh, he won big national competition. Wow! But he he tells a story that uh, his father asked him why do you want to be an artist? I mean it's we're in the Great Depression. And he said, well, I might as well do what I want and not earn money as do anything else and not earn money. Right. So, you know, he just, uh, he was very supportive and it helped. My, my older brothers were both very successful. My oldest brother was a very successful journalist, uh, also went to Harvard. And uh, my, my other brother went to Yale and became a doctor. Oh, so you guys are got, a family of slouches over there. We got the Jewish doctor going. So they, he took that so, pressure off of me. Yeah. <laughs> you can be this screw up. It's fine. Right, right. And, but, you know, I did fine in school. I, I never, I never had any uh, real difficulties in that regard. And they were happy with that. So, you know, they just figured I'd, I'd find my way. Nice. When did you really start having success as a writer in Hollywood? Well, while I was still in the MFA program, um, I was working at that time with a writer named Ed Horowitz on a couple of different projects. And Ed and I um, had co-written and he had sort of, I, I was story editor and he was sort of series creator of a, of a sitcom that we did at UCLA. And we wrote and then produced eight episodes of a, of a sitcom. So we became close and we wrote a script that we sold that didn't get made during our first year at UCLA but we made some money. And then I've written a script called The Rainbow Warrior, which was a big sort of epic up in Alaska, you know, fighting the oil companies thing. And Ed took a look at it and said, you know, if we take some of the mysticism out of this, because it was about centered around the Inuit culture, take mm -hmm. some of the mysticism out of this and make it more actiony, I think we can sell this thing. So Ed and I rewrote it and it became, uh, um, at the time, Steven Seagal was the biggest action star in the world. I remember it well. Coming right after uh, Under Siege. Hmm. And so he really wanted to do this and he had Warner Brothers uh, buy it for him basically. And so that became our first big sale. And we sold that, we wrote it while we were still at UCLA and sold it just shortly afterward. Title was called On Deadly Ground. It started as the Rainbow Warrior because I got that name partly because the Greenpeace vessel is called the Rainbow Warrior. That's yeah. um, but that it got its name from a North Pacific Indian myth about, I did not know that. about a about a warrior who will come to save the, the wildlife of, of the world. Wow. And I thought, okay, great. Now, you know, when we were writing, we were thinking, oh, it'd be great to have like Nick Nolte or you know, like an yeah. actor in the part, but you know, Seagal wanted to do it, he got it made. And you know, it's not a very good movie, I gotta say, but it's become <laughs> kind of a cult movie. It's become a, oh, yeah. you know, and it's, it's I constantly seeing popping up and, you know, I look at it, the, the, the user, the basically audience reviews love this movie. So, you know, it, it got Seagal, it got a lot more violent than we wanted it to be. Of course, it, a lot less rainbowy, a lot a more lot violent. Rainbowy, yeah, but whatever, you know. That after that sale, the venerable Lou Hunter had a, had a warning for you. Oh, yes. So Lou Hunter was one of my professors at UCLA, and he was one of the great, great screenwriting instructors. I mean, we were very lucky when we were at UCLA. We had Richard Walter, who essentially created the program with, yes. with Lou. Uh, we had Lou Hunter, who had been a major TV executive, really, really understood writing. And we had Hal Ackerman, who was a brilliant, is still a brilliant playwright and screenwriter. And then uh, Linda Voorhees, Cynthia Whitcomb, 
um, just great people who could taught us. Um, but anyway, when we sold this uh, script, the day we the day I sold it, we I should say I, um, Lou called me up and he said, "I need you to come over here right now, like tonight." And I'm like, "What? What happened?" You know. So I go over there and he says, "Okay." So two things. The first thing is, great, you sold the script. What else are you writing? He says, you, if, if, that's done. Stop sitting on your laurels. If you're not writing something new, you're not a writer. So it was kind of like, yeah, great. You sold that. What are you doing now? So that was the first thing he said. And the second thing he said is, don't go buy an expensive car. Don't go do stupid stuff with your money. Put that money away because you never know if that's going to be the last money you're ever going to make as a screenwriter. Yes. And he, he said, I cannot stress that. People get stupid with their money and then they run out of it and they never score another script sometimes. Mm-hmm. So um, I did, uh, as he suggested, and that's the money that put my kids through college. That's amazing. Yeah. So. And so important. I, I know so, I talked to so many writers who've had the one big thing and then never really anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh, and it's wise, wise words. This is one of the things that I, one of the things that Lou really tried to impress upon us was that every script sale is is lightning striking and you can't expect it to strike again. I mean, there are people, of course, and there are very rarefied few who get assignment after assignment and they just they're in the mold. People like Eric Roth or Gary Ross, people like that. But most writers are working from assignment to spec script to uh, every every working writer I know is working on a spec script now. I mean, the days of the big sales are not happening. There is yeah. no competing frenzy. And so uh, you're always reinventing the wheel. And one of the things that Lou really prepared us for was that it's a long haul. It's a long career and you can't approach it as if, oh, I, I sold something, therefore I'm in. Because yes. you're never really in. It's always what you're, what do you got next? What have you got next? And uh, so Lou, Lou gave us amazingly good advice. Um, so good. And yeah, so I've, I've and, and the other, the other funny thing about Lou, and I, I've always regretted when I haven't taken this piece of advice. When I, the first time I was invited to teach at UCLA, uh, I was about three weeks into the term. And I was pretty excited that they invited me in to teach. And I got a call offering me the chance to direct an episode of a TV show called, uh, it was a TV show called Vital Signs. And it was true stories of amazing medical things right. that happened. Uh, and um, I said, well, I'd love to do it, but I'm teaching this class. I need to be able to take some time off to teach my class so that I can. And they said, no, you can't do that. If we hire you as a director, that's it. You're all in. We own you. And you have to just tell you have to tell them that you got to quit the class. And I was distraught, so I called Lou up, and he said, "Just say no. Tell him no." And I said, "What do you mean, just tell them no? It's the first opportunity <laughs> to direct something that's been given to me." He says, "Just tell them no. There's no sexier word in Hollywood <laughs> than no." So I'm sweating. I'm oh my god, what am I doing? But I called, I called this producer up and I said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I'm, I've got this responsibility to teach this class and thank you for the opportunity. So the next day she calls me and she said, okay, how would you like to be supervising producer for the entire show? <laughs> and I, what does that mean? Well, you'd be, you'd be in charge of all the scripts and communicating with all the directors. 
what needs to be done. I, I, I'm like, what? You know, I, I was like, I said, I no, and you promoted me. And I said, well, I still have to teach my class. And they said, that's fine. You can teach your class. So I ended up being in charge of all the directors. <laughs> oh my God. And I got to teach my class. And one of the things I have learned is every time I've said no to a bad deal, it's turned around and, and benefited me because when you say no to somebody in Hollywood, they always are like, oh my God, what, we got to have this person. They, right. they say no to me. You know, they must be good because they turned me sure. down. It, it's the strangest psychology. And the only times I haven't taken that advice, I've always regretted it. it that is amazing. It's the best advice I ever got. So I tell all my students when they're given, oh, someone wants you to write a script for them for free on the off chance that they'll get some back end, just say no. Say, if you like my writing and you yeah. want me to write the script for me, you're, put your money where your mouth is. Yes, absolutely. I mean, if, if my writing has value, then it has value. And if it doesn't, then it's a waste of time because you're not investing anything into my work. You're, yes. you know, so I'll, I'll spend months writing a script and you look at it and go, yeah, not what I wanted. And then you're screwed. Yes. So um, I'm very- Been there, uh, done that. Yeah. I'm very adamant with my students never to do free work unless it's with a friend or, you know, if it's their own project, something like that. But what happens is a lot of people who want to be producers, want to be directors, they'll have optioned, oh, I know, news story, or they'll have an idea of their own and they don't know how to write it. And they'll just start casting about for someone to write it for them. Mm -hmm. And they will take advantage of you and they'll waste your time in, in a huge way. Yeah. And uh, life is short. So don't do that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, uh, make, it makes me want to just like call up Shonda Rhimes tomorrow and just go, no, I won't direct anything for you and then see what she comes back with. Well, first you have to get an <laughs> offer. You can't just call her up blind and say, you don't I mean, know me, but I have no intention of directing <laughs> you. I, I'm not sure that would work. <laughs> I don't know. It's worth a shot. I love yeah. it. Well, you know, look, go for it. Worst that'll happen is she'll go, who? And hang up. But yes. Maybe she'll go, who is this idiot? Hire this woman. This woman has balls. Good God. Yeah, no, so maybe. <laughs> then what, how, how did you go from there to America's Most Wanted? Well, um, a couple of different things happened. One was um, that I had been uh, writing some... Uh, didn't nothing got made, but I've been working on some true crime things at uh, a company called uh, New World Pictures, mm-hmm. where it was a it was not the highest tone company. They were doing things like Transylvania Six Five Thousand and <laughs> you know this kind of thing. So I was learning sort of about crime writing, and then nepotism can help. My brother got a job as a producer on, Amer- on America's Most Wanted, and so he introduced me to his boss. And his boss said, well, let me see what you can do. So I wrote up, I wrote a script and he said, this is great. You want to yeah. direct it? So I got another directing going on. And from then on, I, I did a, a couple dozen of these um, where I would go out and I would, would be called the field producer is what you're called, okay. but you're writing and directing the show and interviewing the victims. Sure. One of the nice things about America's Most Wanted is every one of those, they, they don't do it anymore, of course. But at the time, every one of them was a little crime drama and they really wanted yeah. it to have dramatic value, you know, that this really happened. We're really trying to catch this guy, but it also had to be uh, an entertainment. 
Yeah. And uh, I was very pleased that on the shows that I did, we caught a couple of child molesters. We caught a serial killer. Oh, my God. We caught some pretty bad people. And uh, it made me feel like as much as it's the lower end of, you know, the spectrum when you think about writing, directing the reality TV, uh, it had real world impact. I was going to say, that's real value. That's like you possibly saved lives and and, and then helped. that led, yeah, and then that led to my writing a uh, a TV movie for Fox about the true story of the escape from Alcatraz. Oh wow! And so that got made. And um, how gratifying so does that feel point. to just huh? like write the words and then go there it is on screen? It got made. Yeah, it got made, and it's nice when you can direct it too, because uh, then it got made. Yes. The way you wanted to make it. As many writers do, I, I've sort of followed where the opportunities are. Hmm. And one of the things I've been bad at, and one of the pieces of advice I'll give our listeners, is to brand yourself, hmm. to make your name in a certain kind of writing so that you can get recognized and, and hired and, and uh, it, it makes your career that much easier. I've never done that. So after On Deadly Ground, which was a pretty tough experience, working with Steven Seagal was not fun. Uh, and These are shocking words, you say. Yeah. And I, I never really uh, felt like I was an action writer. You know, okay. uh, we, we turned it into this action movie. I'm glad we sold it and all that. But I decided I'm going to write the thing I want to write. And you'll love this. It was a true love story set in 15th century Florence. Well, what's not to love? Yeah. And it's, a, a, it's an amazing, it's still the best script I ever wrote. Oh. And I, I optioned it once. I haven't been able to get it made, but it's an amazing script, if I say so myself. Yeah, cute. Got myself on the back a little. But I showed it to my agent, and he was expecting, you know, John Wick, I guess, you know, something <laughs> like that. And here's this love story set in the 1450s in Florence, and, he, and his exact words to me were, what the fuck is this? <laughs> <laughs> so... He was not particularly- So he loved it. Yeah, so he wasn't particularly helpful. Oh my God. But he said, well, you gotta write another action thing. Okay, so, so that's such, so interesting though, because as a writer, like I love to jump genres all the time and I have so many different things and, and, and I don't wanna be pigeonholed. Right. But it sounds like you're saying, pigeonhole yourself if you wanna yeah. have- Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you wanna become someone who's known and recognized so people have a certain amount of you have a certain track record for one thing of things getting made and yeah. people trust you to be able to deliver. So, you know, I don't know, I'm pulling this name out of my hat, but like David Fincher is well known for these very dark uh, psychological thrillers, but he could direct anything he wants now mm -hmm. because he's David Fincher, you know, yeah. Eric Roth can write anything he wants now because he's Eric Roth. And I should have paid more attention to that because uh, it did it did hamper me. Now I did write another action movie, and sold it. Uh, and in fact, I've sold it twice because it went into turnaround <laughs> at one place. Oh, I remember this story. And then I, and then I sold it to another place, and then it's in turnaround again. So I own it again. It's a little Thank long in the tooth, but I'm happy to sell it again if anyone wants it. And and actually, the first script that I wrote for that director I mentioned to you, who let me house sit for him, yeah. was a contemporary love story set in Italy. I'm, I'm, I, as you are, am in love with Italy. Mm -hmm. And um, I wrote a script uh, that basically combined two women that I knew when I was uh, working as a sculptor. I took a year off from college to work as a sculptor in Pietrasanta. And 
I fell in love with a very odd woman artist who had a beautiful little boy, four, four years old, but she was crazy. She was really a nut. And I was also dating another young woman, an Italian girl who uh, ended up uh, dying in a motorcycle accident. Oh my. So I came up with a script about a guy who goes over and falls in love with, I guess you'd call it now a magical pixie is the term for this kind yep. of woman. I've also but, written that script. <laughs> yeah, but it was basically a combination of these two real women who were, mm. who were that kind of person and about a young man who ends up becoming the father of this little boy because uh, his mother has died. And uh, so that was the first script that I actually optioned, I made money on because the director I was house sitting for optioned it. Oh, nice. This, and this is another interesting story about how the business goes. He went over to Italy, got everything set up. Nina Rota was gonna do the score. Hmm. We had Rob Lowe was attached to Star. It was with Vestron Pictures. Now Vestron had made its money with uh, Dirty Dancing, and uh, it had become one of the oh, first that's right. one of the first companies that really exploited the VHS market. The problem was they weren't very good at, at, at their business, okay. and so we were one month away from principal photography when that side of their business went bankrupt, and they pulled the plug. We had the actors hired, we had the location set up, we had the entire cast and crew set up, and a month before it went into production. Uh, they pulled the plug. So then <laughs> we brought it over to Warner Brothers uh, to um, Sandra Locke, who had a deal at Caritas Films. And this is the other side of the business where <laughs> war stories. Um, she had a slate of four films that she was going to make and mine was going to be one of them. And I met with actors. I met the, the actor she wanted at the time was one of the people who was playing the Phantom of the Opera. Mm. Very... Uh, Davis, Davis Gaines, I think his name, uh, very nice guy, very handsome, would have been great. But this was at the time that Clint Eastwood decided he was gonna kill Sandra Locke's career because she had had a nasty divorce from him. And so he was God at Warner Brothers and mm -hmm. he basically, and she sued him for this and won, but then she ended up passing away, of course. But he shut down her entire slate because Warner's was just sort of stringing her along. And my, my film, my, my script got caught up in that. Wow. That, that, option is, that script has been optioned five times, never made. Oh, my so. God. <laughs> well, hey, I mean, look at Queen's Gambit, right? 30 yeah. years. Oh, I know. And this is what, these are, these are the mirages that keep you going forward in the desert. Yes. I finally found water. And then, oh, yeah, now it's still further off in the distance. Oh, my God. But I mean, I'm, look, I made money on these things. There's two things you got to think about. On the one hand, I've made a living. On the other hand, it's frustrating that you do this work and it doesn't get made or seen. Yes. Yeah, we're pouring our hearts and souls into these pages and yeah. nobody cares. Right. But, you know, um, one of the people who fell in love with uh, this script I was just mentioning was called My Alexander, this contemporary love story set in Italy. It was a producer named Lance Hool. And Lance is a great guy, uh, runs an outfit called Silver Lion uh, Films and uh, had most, had mostly been known for doing J. Lee Thompson, kind of uh, um, Charles Bronson movies, things mm. like that. Uh, but he also did one of the um, Crocodile Dundee sequels. And, oh, gosh. Okay. You know, but he, he hired me to write a script about the war in Bosnia, which was supposed to get made with Bosnian money after the war. It never did get made, another one of those. But we worked closely together. And then years later, 
as in like three years ago, he said, you know, I've never forgotten my Alexander. And he, he had, he's one of the guys who had optioned it years and years ago. I have this opportunity to make this movie an amazing film about a lung transplant hmm. and about how a young freshman in college, American kid dies of a brain aneurysm. The heir to the Bacardi rum fortune, who's a middle-aged man, is the one who anonymously gets his lungs. Oh, wow. The two families can't stand not knowing who each other are. Mm -hmm. and they find each other and basically become one family. Oh, wow. And it's just amazing. And it became the movie that is in theaters right now called Two Hearts. Now, I had written it with a bit more edge. I'd also involved the lives of some of the other people whose lives had been affected by the donation of, you know, this kid's donations went to other people as well. Mm -hmm. And part of the big uh, thrill of the story for me was that this fellow Bacardi, who I got to meet, I got flown down to meet him in the Bahamas, which was nice, Ugh. set up a, uh, a fund and built a home for people who are unable to uh, pay for hotels when they're waiting for their relatives to get transplants. Oh, wow. So he created something called the House of, uh, House of Gideon. So he's a, a, was a lovely, lovely man. And I really fell in love with both of these families and, and wrote this script. Lance really wanted it to be much more of a tearjerker, mm. much more Nicholas Sparks. Okay. And so I just wasn't able to deliver that. I just couldn't, couldn't make it real for myself. So he brought on another writer who did. And so we share screen credit on that. Um, I'm not proud of it. I mean, it's it's gotten a little bit hammered by the critics, but it's gotten very high audience uh, audience response. I think that's it's especially now with streaming. It's like that's what matters more than every anything. Yeah. yeah. It's like a, but um, no, I'm it. So you know, that's a movie that's out in theaters now. So what the other? I guess the lesson of that is Lance and I probably hadn't talked for a decade. Hmm. Uh, he had optioned my Alexander. He'd also optioned a script I wrote that was very similar to what a script that became The Revenant, uh, the Leonardo ah. DiCaprio. I'd written a script, oh, a decade before that. And by the way, a much better script than that um, <laughs> uh, about the first mountain man that had many, many similar elements because it was, I mean, both of yeah. them were based on true stories. And these guys sure. who lived in the early 1800s in the mountains had a lot of similar experiences. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, anyway, so he had optioned that. I hadn't talked to him in maybe a decade. So out of the blue, he just calls me up and said, I've never forgotten my Alexander. Mm. I want you to write this movie for me. And that's something that I, I really want to impress on your listeners that you don't burn your bridges ever. Yeah. And except maybe with Steven Seagal. Um, <laughs> and uh, if your work is good, people will remember you. And it's important to know that even though something may not pan out now, it can lead to something later mm -hmm. if you've delivered. If you've delivered the goods earlier on, those producers will remember you. In so fact, important. one of the people who optioned My Alexander, the, the love story set in Italy, was a producer named Joel Simon. Joel unfortunately passed away a few years ago from pancreatic cancer. He was a, a wonderful guy. And so when he left Warner Brothers, he picked that script up after the Caritas thing fell apart. And then he went over to World Wrestling Entertainment as their head of production. And I had written this other little action movie 
And he said, well, let me see it. So he bought it for World Wrestling Entertainment. Oh my God. The whole thing is he would never ever ask me to see that script if he didn't know me from the other script, which was sure. a different genre. Yeah. So it's, it's really important to maintain your connections, to remain friendly with producers, even if things don't go the way you want them to, because things might later on. Well, and I, that sort of brings me to another point you told me about your, your agent when you'd written a Western. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, the thing is, oh, no one's doing Westerns anymore. Okay. So, I mean, just look at the past five years and what's been on TV. Yeah. And, you know, it's just stupid. And I, when I was first at New World Pictures, I brought in a baseball story. I thought, oh, because I thought that was my job. I was going around looking for the projects to bring into these producers that I was interning for. And oh, no one's doing baseball movies. Well, then Field of Dreams and Bull Durham and all this, yeah. you know. So, you know, everybody in every interview probably quotes William Goldman's No One Knows Anything. Yes. But it's just true. Um, and anyone who tells you, oh, we're not doing Westerns, that's the time to start writing a Western. Yes. Because <laughs> it's almost like, uh, it's almost like, Whatever he says isn't going to happen is probably what is going to happen. Great. <laughs> it's I just, love that. Just to be, just because this world is that perverse. Yes. The well, and is write a great story. It, yeah. You, know, you mentioned the Queen's Gambit. Now that took, I think, what, 25, 30 years to get made? Yeah. Like yeah. But and he kept being told, great. no one wants a chess movie. And it's like. With a little luck. And that's, that's the crucial thing. With a little luck, a great story will get found. And it can be as unusual as that. It can be um, like a Parasite. Who would have thought Parasite would be yes. the Oscar winner? And, you know, a story about a, a poor Japanese family hunkered down in the basement of a rich family and it all ends up in a bloodbath. Korean, but yes. Who'd want to make that movie? Well, turned out yeah. to be one of the best movies of the past five years. Yeah. So make the movie that you believe in. The one thing you should never do as a writer, especially as a spec writer, and by spec, I mean writing something that you're hoping to sell that you haven't been hired to write, mm -hmm. is to do something that you think is going to be commercial. Yes. That's just, you're always chasing la yesterday's t newspaper. You know, mm -hmm. whatever is commercial right now is not what's going to be commercial in two years. Uh, it just, the world keeps changing. And... The only things that I've ever seen get made, get bought and made, have been passion projects. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not to say someone doesn't get hired to try, you know, to adapt a novel. Like Eric Roth sold one spec script coming out of UCLA and then got hired to do adaptations. And as far as I know, he's never written another spec script since because he doesn't have to. Wow. He just yeah. keeps, give, they keep bringing him Forrest Gump or whatever it is he's going to write next, you know? So he doesn't have to bastard but um <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a nice bastard gig. but if you're specking something it's got to be a passion project because that's yeah. first of all that's why you write you write you become a writer not instead of a banker or a doctor or whatever the hell else you might be because you have stories you want to tell so tell the stories you want to tell don't tell the stories you think someone else might want to buy it's yeah. just completely the wrong way to think about it and as far as I've seen, never has worked. People, all my students who've written their passion projects have been more successful than those who've written to what they thought the market was. Yeah, well, because it's, that stuff shows. Well, my right. next question actually was, 
as an instructor and as a writer who shares knowledge, yeah. you then wrote a book about screenwriting. I did. You sure um, did. Back what, in the, yeah, yeah, tell me how that came about and like what, because there's a million books on screenwriting, right? Like, so what made you want to do that? And what well, did there you are now. writers? There are now. When I first started out, and this is a million years ago, in a, in a previous century, I can actually say in a prior century, Sidfield really had written the only book out there. And I think Linda Seeger had uh, one or two books out. And then uh, Lou Hunter and Richard Walter both wrote some screenwriting books and they were my professors at UCLA. Um, but one of the things I noticed and, and it was particularly Sid Field's books that challenged me in that they were very formulaic. Mm. You know, by page, a script is 120 pages. At page 30, there must be a plot point. What a plot point is, very abstract. Then page 90, another plot point. What that is, a little abstract. Then he wrote another book saying, well, I've discovered that there's a midpoint. And so yes. at page 60, there's a turning thing. And I'm thinking, okay, so what? Are you saying there's three acts or four acts? It's, it, it, it didn't strike me as very useful. Mm. Um, so I had been putting together just a, a pamphlet, basically, of my own thoughts on writing. What works, what doesn't work, what... What, what are genres really about? Mm. You could say it's a comedy. Well, what does that mean? It was supposed to make you laugh. How does a comedy work? Why yeah. does a comedy make you laugh? Why does a horror film frighten you? What, how does, what are the tools and the techniques to make a detective story interesting, a love story, uh, a comedy, a romantic comedy? And I began looking at, there are different strategies for pushing different emotional buttons that are out that are how writers, you know, that we use them, whether we're using them consciously or, or unconsciously, everything from rules of three to uh, physical comedy to how do you construct a character that we care about? Uh, I have something uh, that I call a pet the child uh, moment. Pet which, the child. Yeah, because you can, you can pet a dog or you can be nice to a child. I combine the two, you pet the child. <laughs> if you pet a child, we know you're a good guy. Even better, if you're asleep and a child tucks you in. Oh. The tuck, you, anybody listening to this, you will never watch another blanket tuck again and not realize <laughs> this is a cliche. It's a technique for making you know that the person getting tucked in is a good person. Somebody cares for them. If a <laughs> child feels it, you know it's authentic. You, then it's, and then it's innocence recognizing goodness. Yes. I mean, this is also why dogs are so important as signifiers in films. Dogs protect. Dogs are our friend. Unless they've been perverted by humankind and they become Cujo, yes. then, they're, then they're ultimately bad because you've taken a very good thing and turned it into a very bad thing. You've Darth Vaderized it. <laughs> um, but cats are bad normally. And therefore, I never want to save the cat, screw the cat, because cats are familiars of witches. Cats are knowing and sexual and not reliable and not faithful. And therefore, cats generally get you into trouble like they do with Ripley in Alien. Cats are, cats are not good news. I, gotta say, I hate to tell you cat lovers this. Look, my son has a cat, loves cats. But in movie terms, cats generally are bad news. No, but it's so interesting that there's those tropes that are like, they, they, they hold a story significance for a reason. Right. So, for example, uh, the reason Blofeld in the Bond movies has a cat 
And that shows that he's a bad guy. He's stroking this white, obnoxious cat. Um, but dogs, dogs are always good. Uh, and uh, well, I'm not going to argue with and that. Also, and also strange animals. People who have strange animal pets are good. So if you look at the Terminator, her pet is an iguana. She has a weird pet. What is that a signifier of? It signifies, A, that she loves an animal, so she's a good person. B, that she loves an unusual and somewhat, to most people, scary animal, which means she's got a certain toughness to her. That mm. she is not as much of a helpless waitress as she seems to be. The fact that she has a pet iguana is a signifier that lets us know there's more to her than that. So anyway... So I started putting together these thoughts as this pamphlet that I was calling Russin's Rules. Then one of my uh, fellow students at UCLA uh, in the MFA, who um, subsequently become a very successful playwright, but he, he started out as a TV writer. He said, you know what? I've been offered this opportunity by uh, this publishing company to write a book on playwriting, but they also want one on screenwriting. And I have no idea how to write a book on screenwriting. You want to write them with me? And I said, okay. So basically I wrote the bulk of the screenwriting book and he wrote the bulk of the playwriting book. And then we kicked it back and forth yeah. until it was sort of both of our books. And uh, that's what became screenplay writing the picture. Basically I just handed him like 120 pages of my, of my Russin's rules. And I said, well, we'll start with this. I love and, it. Uh, and that turned into the book. One of the nicest things my mentor Lou Hunter ever did was give me that blurb on the book. Yes. It's the best book on screenwriting ever written, including his own. That's amazing. And I just had Meg Gifford on a couple weeks ago or months ago now because she worked with Lou on his new book. Ah, uh, yeah. And so like we, the whole Lou's excellent books are in the air here. So yeah, Lou, that Lou, is powerful Lou, compliment. Yeah. yeah. Well, Lou has, Lou has a great legacy. He's, yes. he's helped the careers of hundreds of writers, you know? Yes. One of the things, um, Richard Walter at one point was up for a promotion and I was a professor at that point at UCR. So he said, hey, can you, can you toss in a good word for me? And um, one of the things I pointed out was that Lou and, well, Richard really is, it was for Richard, could be considered an uncredited co-writer on hundreds of produced movies because of the uh, teaching and um, wisdom that he passed along to his students who wrote those movies. And many of them who gave their drafts to him to correct and comment on and whatnot. Uh, so these those two have an amazing legacy, and as does Lou. Same thing, really. That's I think I feel really fortunate. I got mm -hmm. to study with Richard a little bit, so it's like, yeah, and with Hal. So yeah, but studying with Richard, Richard's oh always got some stories to tell. He does. What a personality. <laughs> he does. But so, he, had, he had some very valuable things. You know, he tends to repeat himself a lot because why not? He's been lecturing about this for 40 years. Yeah. One of, the, one, of the, one of the most important things he's ever said to any of his classes, and this is another thing that I will point out, drama is about conflict. It could be yes. comedic conflict. It can be deadly conflict. It can be whatever it is. But he said, nobody wants to watch the village of the happy people. I quote him on that all the time in my right. classes. Unless something really bad is about to happen to it. <laughs> But it's so true. I mean, so many beginning screenwriters, they've got 30 pages of setup. Yeah. Nothing's happening. Or you're just generally too easy on your protagonist. It's like, yeah, oh, well, but this is nice. If they get to bake the bread, that's nice. Yeah, there's nothing at stake. 
Yeah. So the stakes, you know, the stakes don't have to be literal life and death. They can be emotional life and death. But there's got to be something at stake that matters enough that we care to watch that story. Yes. And, uh, you know, so it, it's very important that you, in, that you indicate very quickly. The first couple of pages are your setup. And then tell us what this world is going to be. What is the conflict mm -hmm. that's going to happen in this world? What is wrong? What do they need to solve? Yeah. So I, I noticed on your Wikipedia that oh. you, 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 the headline on your Wikipedia is uh, Robin Rusin, American playwright. And I just was, it got me thinking, how is it that you would like to be known? Is, is it, you want I to be known? I didn't write that actually. So, um, <laughs> I'll have to go and take, well, I am an American playwright. By yeah, it's not wrong. I not just wrong. thought like, wow, is that, that's the headline. Okay. Well, I've written two produced uh, full length plays, uh, including one that had a four month run in Santa Monica that was sold out. So that was nice. Um, and that was a very different topic. It was about, uh, it was about a woman who's converted to Judaism as she's married her second husband, who's a Jewish doctor. And they both have children from a previous marriage. And they have one child together who is about to turn 13, a young boy. Mm -hmm. And she's decided she's going to do a real Passover, a proper Jewish Seder, which is, you know. And then what happens, of course, is that all the issues of this Passover begin to erupt in the problems of their lives. Because the Passover, the reason it's called Passover is the angel of death passes over your house because you've painted lamb's blood so that the firstborn in your family will not die. It'll go on and kill the Egyptians firstborn. And that has always troubled me as, yeah. as a Jew, as someone who celebrates the idea of freedom, uh, which is what Passover is meant to be about, the escape from bondage. But there is this very dark thing at the heart of it, which is about death, about the shadow of death over the whole proceeding. And so the play was about how everyone in that room is dealing with the shadow of death in one way or another. Oh, interesting. And uh, so, yeah, and I think, I think it's a pretty good play. And then I wrote another play called Painted Eggs about a Ukrainian mm -hmm. mail order bride who comes over, who's, who's basically bought by this fellow, this older fellow in Detroit who's, whose wife has died. And he sees a picture of this girl who reminds him of his wife when she was young. And so he brings her over from the Ukraine and of course, she's nothing like his wife, and she's young, and she and he's got a son her age, and trouble oh, <laughs> trouble begins to ensue. Uh, so I have that play good. that I've made, and then I've written about forty short plays that have been okay. in there. So, but in in terms of your legacy, would you like to be known as a as American playwright or as American screenwriter or as uh, instructor director? Kid, I'm too young to be thinking about a legacy. Um, <laughs> All right, we'll go with that. Um, yeah, no, I mean, look, I, I want to be remembered as a storyteller, I think. I'd put it that Beautiful way. Beautiful answer. And we should all be so lucky. Um, well, you know, part of the reason I say that is, is it encompasses the various aspects of what I do. But one of the things that I, I truly believe is that story is how we understand our lives. Story, without story, everything is chaos. Hmm. Uh, the story of how our grandparents came over from the old world, wherever that was. Um, the story of uh, how, how people, how, how I fell in love, how you fell in love. All of these are random, basically. I mean, they just sort of things that happen on it by accident, by and large. 
story is what gives them structure and meaning. Story is how we contextualize the, the various odds and ends of our lives into something that has a sense of purpose. And it is true often at our, at our cost because religion is, all, is, is about story. Mm -hmm. I mean, the Bible is a bunch of stories. Now, if you read the Bible for what they can teach you about human nature, about good and evil, about the human experience, great. If you read it as a literal transcript of God's exact plan, and then you get into horrible things. But that's when story become overtakes reason. Mm. But story combined with our ability to understand its metaphoric component is how we make meaning out of our lives. And I don't think there's anything more powerful or more important for people than figuring out why they are, who they are, why, why they do what they do. Wow. Yes. The other thing, and then I'll let you get back into your questions, is every antagonist on some level is a metaphor for death. Because mm. part of the reason we tell story and try to create meaning, if I can use that existentialist idea, is because we're all going to die and we don't know what's going to happen after that. The undiscovered country from who was born, mm -hmm. no traveler returns, right? As Hamlet said. Interestingly, saying that after a traveler has returned in the form of the ghost. But let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> Shakespeare, but, what did he know? <laughs> what does he know? Well, th there's a whole class I teach about that. But um, the fact that we're going to die is what makes stories so urgent. And every, every antagonist, whether it's given a literal death name like Spectre in the Bond movies, or it's simply the emotional death of not connecting with the person you love and therefore not fulfilling your life, the antagonistic side, it's, it can be Darth Vader or it can be a cruel, a cruel person in your school as a teenager. One of the best movies I saw last year was Eighth Grade, yeah. uh, Bo, Bo Burnham's movie. It's a fabulous movie and just brilliantly acted. Um, but for her, death is rejection. Yes. Her, death is not fitting in. Death is, death is, is wanting to, to kill herself in the end, to, to telling her father, I, why, does any, why do you love me? We always tell stories in order to somehow overcome that fatal uh, necessity. Yeah. Well, and I feel like there's something in all of us as writers that makes us feel vital and makes us like, it feels like a very, it's very important work. And it's, yeah. it's not, we're not curing cancer. We're not walking on the moon, but we do this thing and people think, you know, well, where do you get, where do you get off having an ego? You're just a writer. We don't even pay you very much. And it's like, well, but I believe this is important work. Well, and the proof that it's important is that everybody is talking about it. Everybody is talking about these stories. Everybody's talking about the Queen's Gambit, or they're talking about uh, the Mandalorian, or they're talking about um, Inception or, or Tenet, or what that's our common yeah that's our that's our that's our campfire that we sit around yeah and discuss was it good was it bad is it a good story is it a bad story what did it mean what did, did, I, I, what did I feel from it what did I feel from it these the stories are how we engage with each other as social beings 
So it's incredibly important. Yeah. So that's why we have egos as writers. Yeah. Um, and you kind of have to have ego as a you writer. You do. You have to yeah. believe that other people will find what you think is important, yeah. uh, equally important to them. Absolutely. Yeah. The only the only reason this story, this script is interesting is because you're the one writing it. Because no one would write it the way you're writing it. You have to believe that that's right worthy. So, on that note, yeah. I would love to open it up to questions. How can I get empathy for a character? So how do we how do we create characters that do pull empathy from the viewer? Well, there's a couple of different things. One is what they care about has to be something that you care about, that you think other people will care about, that what they're trying to get in life is something we can relate to. So it can be uh, John Wick getting revenge because they killed his damn dog uh, and you just want to see him kick some ass. And so we empathize with him. Why do we empathize with him? They killed his dog. So, uh, look back to earlier notes in my presentation. He also cats versus dogs. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so that's one way. The other thing is uh, to have them be kind to other people when they don't have to be. Mm. That's part of the pet the child thing that I'm, I sort of as as a joke. But if somebody is decent to someone else within the within a story, we tend to want to identify with them. Um, take like one of my favorite comedies is uh, there's something about Mary. Um, this is this poor schnook is in love with a goddess. I mean, she's the, the absolutely most perfect woman who was ever created on God's earth, which is part of the hilarity of it. And he goes out of his way, often in the wrong direction, trying to win her love. Well, who of us has not tried to win the love of someone that we felt was way past us in terms of you know, their desirability and, and quality? Uh, so we're gonna identify with that story. We're gonna identify with desire. Now, desire, doesn't have to be a bad thing. But sometimes desire is also a misleading thing. And we know that what someone desires in a story is not what they need. We, we desperately want them to find what they need. And their desire line may be in conflict with that. Mm -hmm. They may desire to be rich and famous, but what they need and what we want from them is to, discover, is to, is to find their inner humanity and, and pay attention to their child who they've ignored or something like that. You know, I'm just riffing on this. Yes. But you create empathy by creating a desire line that we can identify with, by giving your character moments of generosity, and by making the stakes high enough that we care whether that person achieves their goal or not. And also that what they're up against, we can identify as something that we've been up against ourselves. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that force of antagonism doesn't have to be evil, but it has to be in opposition to them. And it has to be a strong opposition where we can feel that we identify with that struggle and we, we know that it's gonna to be tough, but the fight is gonna be worth fighting. We have a question from Caitlin. Cool, uh, Heidi, thank you for hosting this and Robin, thank you for speaking with us tonight. I want to be in a writer's room and I have long-term ambitions of being a showrunner. Uh, right now, I'm kind of just in the networking stages, writing pilots, getting my name out there as much as I can. And I was curious to know, what has your past experience been when needing to promote yourself? And how much of growing your career has been marketing yourself versus your work? Yeah, that's, those are great questions. Um, I'm terrible at marketing myself, as Heidi can attest. Um, 
because we were gonna, I was gonna be teaching years ago with her and I'm just stuck at trying to get myself out there. It's a, definitely a different skill set. It's a different skill set. I think it's both. I mean, it's you know the old thing, it's show business, it's business and show. Part of the business is promoting yourself. Part of the business is being on social media, being brave, contacting the people that you wanna work with and saying, I would, I'd like to have, can I take you out for coffee? Can I come by and, and just get 10 minutes of your time? Because I'd love to hear what you have to say about how I can get where I want to go. People want, I mean, look at, here I'm, I'm talking with Heidi um, because I enjoy this. Most people like talking about what they do. It's, it's a total ego thing, for one thing. It's a total ego stroke. You call someone up and say, you're, you're a showrunner. I admire so much. I would love to buy you a coffee. Just tell me, give me some advice on how to get where I want to go. They love to talk about this kind of stuff. So I I would be very proactive. Uh, You can take classes at UCLA Extension, which are affordable. You can Um, take classes at Pagecraft Writing. Yeah, you can take a class with Heidi. You've got to have the goods. You've got to have the writing goods. You've got to have the sample. And it can't just be one sample. You've got to have several scripts uh, that show that you can do it again and again and again. And then it's a matter of networking and networking can be hard, but I would advise you to go to your university, if, assuming you've graduated from university or in a university, go to their alumni site, find out who the other alumni are in the business who went to your school. They're part of your tribe. I mean, you've got to find these different tribes that you belong to. Part of it is the people you, gra- you, you went to school with, or at least who went to the same school you did, because that's a, an identity thing that you can connect with. You know, when I first came out, like I said, I, friends of friends introduced me to people and I met this director and all of a sudden he's letting me stay in his house. He's optioning my script. He's it's like, but I had a, I had a decent idea to give him, you know, get a decent yeah. script to give him. It's really important that you network. It's a very social business. Like I said earlier, a producer who liked my work 10 years ago hired me to write a script um, because he remembered me. That's part of the network thing. Uh, and we want to work big, with people we like. So, you know, it's like you part of the, part of the showrun thing is uh, I would definitely uh, look at the various diversity and entrancing programs that the different studios have. Warner's, Disney, they all have programs for beginning writers, for diversity, inclusion. I would There's a def- lot of fellowships up right now yeah, that are so fellowship. fellowship season. And in fact, as, as, a, as, a, as a woman, there it's always been awful to be a woman in Hollywood as a writer or director. It's always been a boys club. But this year, this year, maybe the last year and a half, that has started to really change. The Me Too movement, the sense of accountability, the desire of networks and platforms to address this issue because it's good business. Mm. You know, Wonder Woman is the only really successful movie of the year, written by a woman, directed by a woman, starring a woman. They're starting to finally realize that the audiences that flocked to movies in the 30s, because it was all women-dominated movies back then, they're still there if you give them the movies. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of opportunities for women right now that did not exist even five years ago. So I think you're yep. entering the profession at a very good moment in time where opportunity exists that, that maybe not have, might not have existed earlier. Yes. I have a, um, I love to tell the story. I have a script 
uh, that I wrote with a partner of who's a woman of color and it's about a little girl of color. And um, we got, we went out with, we first went out with it about five years ago and we got told, we love it. Your writing's amazing. Can she be white and can she be a boy? Can she be a dog? Yeah, and we were like, <laughs> no, no, I'm not telling a story about a little white boy. You see, there's obstacles that are then not there for that yeah. character. <laughs> that, that kind of question would get laughed out of the room. Now right? it would, yeah, yeah. It really actually, would. Because, you know, everyone's realizing that, yeah, you know, uh, Gal Gadot can open a, not only open a film, open it better than anyone has since uh, Robert Downey Jr. opened Iron, Iron Man. Get yourself into some of these programs yeah. where you are talking to people who write TV, where they're looking for writing writer's room assistants. Uh, get yourself a job as a writing uh, as an assistant on any show. Just relentlessly call production companies up and say, "I want a job as a writer's assistant. This is who I am. Who do I talk to?" Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta be proactive. You gotta get out there. But get yourself in the room. Once you're in the room and you're doing good work, you, there's a good chance you get promoted to staff writer. You're not going to become a showrunner until you've been a staff writer for a while because you've got to know how the business works and how to control a room and all the rest of the production concerns. But once you're in the room as a staff writer, that's where these people then move on and become showrunners. And then remember who they liked working with and then turn around yeah. and call you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Get into one of these programs, apply for them, be relentless in contacting the, the showrunners of shows that you like and saying, I would love to talk to you if you have the time. And if, and, and you know, here's the worst thing that'll happen is they'll say no. Which this, as you said earlier, is the sexiest word in Hollywood. Yes, it can be, yes. <laughs> on the other side, not so much. But um, no, but I mean, the, the point is, it's sexy in that it's also not a bad thing to talk, to ask somebody for something and they say, no, I can't, don't have time. You're no worse off than you were before. Yeah. I mean, you're exactly where you were before. So you haven't lost anything by asking. If they say yes, then you're that much further ahead. Mm -hmm. So the, the people get shy and they think, oh, I'm going to embarrass myself. I'm, and you know, you might get some nasty rejoiners like, I don't have time for you, go away, and they hang up. Okay, move on. You've learned uh, something today. Yeah, but I mean, the main thing is that some people are going to say yes. I had great luck in my early career. And then when I asked people to meet with me, they said yes. And that led to jobs. You know, the reason I got into UCLA MFA program, which was pretty damn competitive at the time, I must say, uh, is I was working at New World Pictures as an intern. I had written a script that wasn't bad. It wasn't great. It's never going to get made, I don't think, but it wasn't bad. But I went to talk to my boss's boss. And I said, uh, would you be willing to write a letter of recommendation for me? Uh, I've been reading scripts here now for four or five months. And he says, yeah, I've read some of your coverage. It's pretty good. I said, oh, good. I'm glad you recognize that. He said, you keep bringing in scripts we're never going to make, but that's a different issue. So he said, let me read your script. So I gave him my script. He read it. And he called Richard Walter up and said, you got to admit this guy. And that's how oh, I got to UCLA. That's wonderful. But I mean, the point is, it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't thought to go and ask the guy. Yeah. yeah. And you people know? people find it flattering when you ask them to be a mentor or a, yeah, give, give advice. Or like, what, you see me as someone that has something valuable to tell you? Awesome. <laughs> and the other thing, too, is that these people that you connect with become friends over a long period of time. I mean, just the fact that I'm talking with Heidi right now 
you know, Heidi was my student at UCLA over a decade, what, 20 years ago? How long ago? God. It was over a decade. It was over a decade ago. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the, that relationship remains. It's, it's, yeah. it, it's, uh, and that's, I have dozens of former students that I am close friends with. Um, and men, most of whom are working, uh, you know, one way or another in the business. That's something that you should try to find, find those mentors, find those allies. So keep your connections. Everything. This is Everything's competitive. competitive. Yeah. It's all competitive. There are probably every year now, it's gotten worse since uh, screenwriting programs were invented. I mean, when I started, I was on a typewriter for God's sake, but um, that's how old I am. With, with, you know, Final Draft and Movie Magic and all the rest of it, it's become so easy to format and mm-hmm. take away any of the difficulty of writing the thing on a technical level. I would guess there's probably 200,000 scripts a year being written, somewhere in that range, of which uh, maybe 200 movies, 300 movies will be made, and maybe another 300 TV shows. So the odds are in, enormously against you to begin with. Yeah. So you're just... This is a dumb thing to choose you want to do, but we do it anyway. Yeah. So, I mean, you just have to accept the comp- the competitive aspect is, is just there. It just is. You have to decide, are you a competitor? <laughs> and if you are, then you've got to keep being, beating on that door. I've written now, I think, 45 scripts. I've made money on maybe a quarter of them. Okay. Because the other scripts just didn't sell. Now, maybe they will. I still have hopes for them. But that's not actually a bad track record. That's uh, that is. I, I I wrote. I put all my log lines on one sheet a couple of weeks ago and realized I have twenty scripts. Yeah. It's just like okay. So you just. I mean, you, that's. You just keep going. Yeah, you just keep going. And how to present yourself so that you're attractive? The best thing is to write a fantastic script. I mean, just make sure your script is as good as you can make it. There's a little demon that sits on my shoulder. I try to shut him up when I'm writing my spec, my, my first draft, because he just gets in the way. But as I'm writing my first draft and getting into my second draft, this little demon says, no, that's okay. As soon as there's something in my head where I'm reading through a line of dialogue or a scene, and I go, that's okay. I know that's my little demon telling me, nope, there is something wrong. Here. <coughs> there's something I know is wrong, or I wouldn't be talking myself into keeping it. As soon as you're trying to talk yourself into keeping something, you know that you've got to change, you've got to fix mm-hmm. it. So that's what you can control is listening to that little voice, really making the script as good as you can, and then put together a really nice presentation of yourself. You might want to do a pitch deck for it, in which case you have visual elements to show what, it, what the movie or the TV show would look like. That's become very common. You might want to... Uh, do a fun biography of yourself to be able to share with people, just a paragraph. I'll tell you one thing, be true to what your natural writing instincts are. I had a student at UCLA, a brilliant comedy student. He was in the the professional program as, as Heidi was. And he was funny as could be. And he wanted to get into the MFA program. And he applied twice. I wrote him letters of reference twice and he didn't get in either time. And I said, what, I don't understand why you're not. So I asked Richard, I said, why is this guy not getting into the, into the MFA program? He said, and his personal statement wasn't that interesting. So I had Dan send me his personal statement. It was boring. It was like, yeah. 
I, I am here and I grew up there and I like to do this. And it's like, Dan, you're one of the funniest guys I know. Write something funny. Wow. So he wrote, he, his next, he applied again and he wrote a hilarious personal statement. Got in, no question. There you go. But he was writing to his voice, you know? He was, let them know who you are as a unique voice. Don't be generic in your writing, whether it's your personal statement to them or your script. Show off why you're the next thing they want to, next person they want to work with because your voice is different and fresh and unique. That is a great note to end on. <laughs> thank you, Robin. That's fantastic. Oh, thank uh, you, Heidi. It's been a real, really a pleasure to see I you feel like... and talk with you again. Next time on Hearthside Salons, do you ever watch a kid reacting to life with joy and think, man, I wish I could still be moved like that? Some creators never lose their wonder in looking at the world. Some of those people become puppeteers. I talk with Leslie Carrara Rudolph, AKA Sesame Street's Abby Kadabi, who says that if you believe enough in your stuff, you'll suck people into your world. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages screenwriting courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, or to be part of our live recording audience, visit us at pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening and stay well. <laughs>